Hi, I'm Dr. Walt Whitley with Dry Eye Coach Podcast, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jill Showalter, who practices at Eye Doctors in Vienna, West Virginia, and Dry Eye Center of West Virginia. Welcome, Jill. Good afternoon. It's great hey, to be get... here, Dr. Whitley. Yeah, great to have you. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about your practice? Um, I have a primary location where we uh, see a lot of just general optometry as well as glaucoma, macular degeneration, medical patients. And then I have a second location, Dry Eye Center, West Virginia, that's dedicated solely to practice of ocular surface disease. Um, a lot of those patients are referred from our primary clinic, but we also do get referrals from other doctors and rheumatologists in the community. Can I ask, how'd you get started with that, the Dry Eye Center? Um, it wasn't really intentional. It just evolved. Um, I I had set out to really practice the most medical practice that I could, and I felt like I was doing a really good job, and I had an aha moment one day. A patient said, you know, Doc, I tried these drops you gave me, and my eyes really aren't feeling any better, and I kind of realized I didn't have an answer for that patient, and I set out to figure that out because I felt bad for not having an answer for that patient, and so I just started. I actually went to SECO um, that year. I think it was 2016, and you did the dry eye raft debate. Uh -huh. And I got to hear about dry from that perspective. And then I saw the, the cheer lab on the floor and I, I said, you know what, I really need to bring this technology to my patients. And so we started incorporating to the primary clinic and then in the strip mall that I'm located and we, it got kind of busy. It was hard to make that flow with our everyday patients and a little opportunity popped up for a small location in the same strip mall. And I kind of got a vision of a place that was dedicated to dry eye, more of a spa environment, kind of quiet, that we could take the extra time that we needed to with those patients. And so I opened that in January of 2017. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And today what we're going to do is we're going to focus more on, on your practice and, you know, the dry eye practice you just mentioned. You saw the opportunity. You saw the aha moment. But it's it's something that we can meet a, meet a patient's need and address a patient's need that many of them have been suffering from for many, many years. And over the past several years, we know that there's been various algorithms seeking to simplify the diagnosis and treatment of dry eye disease, which have been developed, whether it's the Cedars-Aspen, whether it's the TFOS-DUS-2, or the ASCRS algorithm. And so I want to focus on that, that ASCRS algorithm for the preoperative diagnosis and treatment of ocular surface disorders, uh, which essentially is specifically for surgical patients. And so can you talk about, you know, I'm going to ask you different questions about how you incorporate these guidelines into your practice, your philosophy on keeping the standards high, and the importance of the healthy tear film. And so you mentioned the tear lab, but can you tell us about any of the other point-of-care diagnostics you do for dry patients at the outset? Um, so you're talking more about once they've already been diagnosed as dry eye or screening in the main clinic? Any of, what are your go-to point-of-care diagnostics you do okay. in your clinic? Um, in, in our routine exam, we give every patient a dry eye questionnaire. I feel like that dry eye questionnaire is really critical to making patients think about if they're having any of those symptoms. Um, if they answer, it's a, it's a modified OSDI that we created. If they answer positive to any of those three or more of those questions, um, they are encouraged to have a tear lab test. And um, then through the exam, even if they elect not to have the tear lab test, we're going to do, you know, a little bit do some staining and take a look and see what's going on with their ocular surface. And if they test for dry eye, then we're going to 
start them on something, maybe appropriate artificial tears or address their blepharitis, and then we're going to refer them to the dry eye clinic. Um, at the dry eye evaluation, we would do tear lab, inflammadry, phenol red thread, mybography, of course, dye staining, and, and just a very thorough ocular surface evaluation, including things like just taking time to observe the patient's blink, uh, their lid laxity possibly, lid light tests, do they have a little bit of uh, mal-occlusion of their eyelids, they aren't closing while they're sleeping, incomplete blink, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and they're two uh, different exams, as you just mentioned, because the dry eye one, we know what they're coming in for. They're coming in for dry eye, and so we have our protocols in place. And so you have that protocol in place for the new patient. And do you have a specific protocol for follow-ups, or is it to depend on what you see at that time of diagnosis for that dry eye patient at your dedicated center? Yeah, it just it depends on the severity, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, so the average patient, if, if it's not severe, I'm going to follow in two months. But if it's more severe, obviously, I'm going to keep a closer watch on it. Mm -hmm. Are there a couple tests that you typically do? Like, for instance, anytime I bring a dry eye patient back, I always do the speed questionnaire. It's an objective uh, uh, test for subjective symptoms. But then I'm always either alternating between the tear osmolarity or inflammatory. Are you doing something different? or um, Typically... I mentioned we use a modified OSDI to screen patients, but once they come to the dry eye clinic, we do have them fill out a speed questionnaire. I really like that. Sometimes the patient's improvement is gradual and they don't notice, and it's nice to be able to point it out to them and say, look, your symptoms were 26 last time, but they're 15 this time, so we're making progress. Um, so we always do that at our dry eye clinic, and then we always do tear lab and inflammatory. Okay. So for your, let's go back to your routine patients. And so for those routine patients, as we know, the reason for the visit dictates who, get, who gets billed. So if they're there for a vision exam, you're reappointing them, obviously, to your, your dry eye, uh, your, to your dry eye uh, uh, clinic. Um, so one of the things that often come up in, you know, discussions that, the, the, you know, we've had or, or with other dry eye uh, clinicians is about mybography is, do you see that as something that you do routinely on, on a routine exam? Or is it only specifically for patients that come in for a dedicated dry eye? Business? While I think it would be great to do it on all patients, and I hope we're headed there someday, we haven't found a, a smooth way to make that flow in our main clinic. So we just do that at our dry eye center. Okay. And when you do that, are you billing for that? Or is that just something, are you billing external photos? Or how does that work? We do not bill separately for it. Uh, wow. We typically are doing external photos on these patients anyways, so we do not bill separate. We, we used to bill external photos, and then they came out with that kind of saying that that was experimental to use that for scans. so we just bill. We don't bill separately for it. And we don't we don't either within our, within our practice. But you know, mybography is such a huge role, not just for diagnosis and telling the patient, hey, this concerns me but also for education. So, because many of our patients, as we mentioned, have been suffering. And so um, at least they have, an, they have a better understanding of why uh, they've been suffering. So you mentioned the uh, modif modified OSDI. Uh, so what, what have you added onto yours uh, to modify versus the, or why do you choose the OSDI versus some of the other ones? Well, that are out? It's, it's really not an OSDI. It's just, it's just a modified questionnaire in general. So we ask them, do you have any of the following symptoms? Dry eyes, blurry vision, redness, burning, itching, light sensitivity, 
watery, tearing eyes, tired eyes or fatigue, stringy mucus, foreign body sensation, contact lens discomfort, and scratchy feeling. Um, and so those are the questions. If they check three of those, that we're going to offer them the tear lab. Okay. And, and yeah, because they've already identified the symptoms, or you've already identified the symptoms, which uh, justifies doing the various uh, point, of, point of care testing. So I want to start moving over to the ASCRS algorithm, as we talked about. And optometry, as we know, are playing a, a growing role when it comes to uh, co-management and managing our, our patients. And so how does the algorithm uh, match up with what you're doing in clinic? Let's say you have a patient that's just newly diagnosed. How are you educating that patient? Let's, let, we can talk both on the cataract and what you're talking about, the dry eye prior to the cataract procedure. So I, have a, I really try to make sure I screen every cataract patient for dry eye disease. So even if they haven't marked off three and haven't got a tear lab, if they've marked off even one of these symptoms, I am definitely going to stain them and take a close look at their ocular surface before I'm going to refer them out to cataract surgery. And if I see anything, the, the ASCRS defines it as visually significant dry eye and non-visually significant. If I see anything that I think is potentially visually significant, I'm going to just stop and tell them, look, I know that you have cataracts and I really would like for you to get those removed, but we have to address your ocular surface issues first. Um, and I just explain to them, if we don't, you may not have as good of an outcome. You might not see as well. You might be more dependent on glasses. And if we don't, your eyes are going to feel much worse after surgery, and you probably aren't going to be very happy with me. <laughs> so that's yeah. kind of how I explain it to them. And, and I really don't get much pushback. I think because it's surgery, they understand the importance of being ready for surgery. Mm-hmm. So how many visits are you seeing that patient before, uh, before you refer them off? Or is it just you tell them, hey, once it's clear, then we'll send you? Um, I try. I really try to put them on a fast track, and I tell them that up front. Look, I'm going to be more aggressive with your dry eye than I would because I don't want to prolong this for you. So with those patients, typically, depending on what I see, I might go ahead and start them on a restasis zydrosequa while they're in the office or at least a topical steroid and get them quickly to the dry eye center so that we aren't prolonging the process for them. Um, you know, I really want there to be absolutely no staining before mm-hmm. I refer them. These patients, I've had great success. If I've tried a steroid or I've tried Zydra and they come back to the ocular surface clinic and they still have some staining, I offer them Procara. And mm-hmm. I have had great success with that, optimizing the ocular surface. And then mm-hmm. they can usually get quickly to surgery. Yeah, that you know, you mentioned the amniotic membrane, the cryopreserved, and a case comes to mind, a patient of ours had, had some hot spots on their topography, and as you know, topography can be utilized as an additional dry test if we have the hot spots, cool spots, you know, what's going on within that cornea, any smudgy placido rings, or the K measurements. K measurements should be symmetrical, and one, one eye is 44, the other one's 41. We've got to take a, take a look at that uh, that surface, but, you know, putting that amniotic membrane in definitely did help improve that surface, and we only left it in for like uh, four to five days uh, uh, for for that patient. And so uh, we know, we identify it before surgery, it's the patient's problem. If we identify it after surgery, we gave them dry eye. They've never exactly. had it before. And it's that gift that keeps on giving, and that's why that's why it's it's so important. 
and the, the various studies, whether it's going to be the FACO study with Bill Trattler, where 80% of patients had intermediate or higher or level 2 uh, dry eye or worse, or with the study that came out of Duke with Priya Gupta with 54% of patients uh, being symptomatic for dry eye, and there was like 120 patients in that study, and about 80% of those had an abnormal tear test, whether it's the inflammadry or the tear osmolarity. And so they're out there. If they have cataracts, we got to make sure we rule out dry eye and, and, and address that because that can definitely affect the outcomes because I'm sure you've had the patients that uh, somehow slipped through, uh, maybe it wasn't your patient, but had cataract surgery and still pretty dry. Definitely. And yes, occasionally. Um, uh, and if you read the, the whole paper of the ASCRS algorithm, they cite that 35% of patient dissatisfaction after mm -hmm. surgery was related to dry eye. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's significant. Yeah, and then during the examination under that, uh, the ASCRS uh, algorithms, the look, you know, we always got to take a look at those lids. Yes, they may look dry, uh, and we can put them on the cyclosporin or the lafitograft, as you mentioned, but if we don't take care of the, the lids itself, they're still going to have symptoms. Uh, lifting the lids, examining that superior surface as well, seeing if there's any staining on the line of marks, or maybe the patient has a SLK. Uh, pulling on the lids, the laxicity of the lids. Um, is there going to be an exposure that you mentioned as well? But then my bombing gland expression. Do you uh, express everyone's glands, whether they're there for cataract surgery or not, for both rut routine patients as well? I do not, only if I see, you know, telangiectasia or something that is kind of a warning sign to me, then I would look and see, mm -hmm. but not every single patient. Yeah. And that's one of those things that uh, when I was doing my residency, Doug DeVries, uh, one of my mentors, he goes, just express everybody because you don't know what's not normal until you keep looking at what's normal. And, um, and so that's something that we teach our students and residents okay. as well. That's um, a great thought. So tell me about what role do your technicians play during the dry eye workup? The technicians are really critical to implementing this. Uh, you know, first off, you have to make sure that the front desk is getting all of these questionnaires out to patients and, and make sure that your techs are reviewing it. I found when I started doing this that a lot of times patients would get back and they hadn't marked any boxes. And then when I asked them about it, uh, they said, oh, I didn't really look at that. So the techs play the first role of looking at it and going over it with the patient and if they haven't marked anything, kind of asking them the questions. And sometimes that does elicit responses that wouldn't have gotten elicited. Um, so if, if it comes back to me, the questionnaire, the, patient, the staff has to sign off that they reviewed it and there were no positive, you know, they'll put none or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And then it, their presentation of the tear lab to the patient is really critical. Mm -hmm. um, so... I found the other thing I found when I first started implementing it is, is they would bring me a patient and they would have three boxes or more checked. And I would say, well, you didn't do tear lab. And they'd say, well, the patient said it's just allergies. So I realized that I really had to coach my techs on how to bite that patient pushback. So, you know, we helped them with some dialogues of, well, you know, saying to the patient, it may very well be allergy, but it might be dry eye or some other ocular surface disease, and this test is going to help the doctor make the proper diagnosis. And and they do a great job of it, but it did take a little bit of coaching on the techs, and, and now they're great at getting it done. Mm -hmm. In regards to osmolarity, 
and you've, you've, you've mentioned osmolarity quite often already, which it's the go-to for mine, uh, my practice. What role does tear testing or, or osmolarity itself play in your diagnostic approach, and how do you use the results to direct treatment or guide treatment? I find it invaluable in deciphering ocular surface disease um, because, you know, it's all about that loss of homeostasis on the ocular surface, and we really don't know what that status is until we've tested, to me, tear lab and Inflamadry as well. Um, you know, sometimes patients surprise you. They're, they've got a lot of complaints, but their tear lab is normal, but then you know, okay, it's, it's not dry eye, so I need to be thinking, is it allergy? Um, is, you know, what's going on? There's something else going on here. Maybe they have non-obvious meibomian gland disease that just hasn't trickled over into a dry eye problem, but they still have meibomian gland disease. Um, just not to the extent of dry eye yet. So to me, it really, having that tear lab and the inflammatory really helps me parse out which ocular surface disease is going on. So do you always do both tear lab and inflammatory? At our dry eye, both? only at the dry eye clinic. It just became a little cumbersome trying to do the inflammatory in our normal clinic flow. So mm -hmm. um, we don't do the inflammatory in our normal clinic flow. Mm-hmm. And so let's say you had an osmolarity, a patient came in first time, it was 326 in one eye, 340 in the other. Um, you're putting them on treatment. How soon do you bring them back? And are you doing osmolarity? Let's say it goes down. When are you bring them back again? Doing os How do you use osmolarity over time? I guess that's what I'm asking. Um, yeah, we watch it over time. We discuss it with the patients and explain it to them and, and tell them that we're using this as a benchmark. Um, I've even found it helpful with guiding treatment. So let's say you have an aqueous deficient patient and you put them on a good uh, osmolarity lowering tier like Theratiers or Relieva, something with hyaluronic acid, and they come back and it's still really high. I've found a lot of success with, with using punctal plugs on those patients. So it kind of guides my treatment that if it's still high, you put plugs in and it tends to come back down very quickly. Um, of course, I wouldn't do that if they were inflamed. That's why we always do that with the inflammatory for our dry eye patients. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I you like to follow it over time. And to make sure, monitor even periodically once we get them under control, we'll do the tear osmolarity at their yearly visit just to make sure that it's staying controlled. Yeah, and that's how I use those numbers as well. Once we get it under control, that number should be below 308. And I, for simplicity, I just tell the patient 300. See them a couple times a year, order speed, questionnaire, order osmolarity, 300, 300. If it goes up, we have an unstable tear film or hyperosmolarity, so we got to do something exactly like, like you mentioned. And so that's how I utilize it. Uh, as we both know, just like uh, diabetes, we don't, we don't diagnose diabetes off of just one reading. We look at readings over time, and we can say for the, the same for, for glaucoma. So I, I agree. Osmolarity is a, uh, plays a huge role within the diagnostic as well as the management. Uh, and going back to we were, we were talking about staff. So are you doing all the education for your staff, or what resources do you have for our listeners uh, in regards to how best to train their, their staff and technicians? I tell you what, I have found with all of this dry eye process that your uh, company rep is really Great. So the first time when we took this on, the rep came in for Cheer Lab and did a nice meeting and did the training with the team. Um, very helpful. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And then, of course, I do the ongoing training. Uh huh. (laughs) But. uh And then, you know, there's various resources, whether it's the uh, uh, local societies, state societies, national organizations. There's a lot of resources as well at SECO. I know they do a lot of uh, training for for the uh, allied eye care professionals. And so, great, a lot of different resources uh, as well. Yep, I do try to get my staff to training. I do feel it's important for them to get training from someone besides me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also valuable to have a key team member. So I'm blessed with, with a, I guess you'd call it the dry eye champion, and she does a great job of educating, you know, new hires and, and other employees. Yeah, you can call call her him or her a champion or a whisperer, whatever you want, but you've got to have a dry eye counselor. And that's yep. definitely as you get more and more into dry eye, uh, it definitely helps you out, helps with the education. And when you're moving into the various procedures, they can help do the education as well as follow up with the procedures. And depending on the state that you're in, as we know, are you allowed to delegate uh, procedures to you know, technicians in West Virginia? I actually do not know. I no. have not really done that. How about in Virginia? Yeah, in Virginia, we're able to, to delegate. And so uh, uh, we do have our, our dry eye champion that helps helps with a lot of that but you know if i have a patient i'm referring for any of the dry eye uh uh, dry eye procedures if i get the if i make a firm and strong recommendation and that's the key as you know to get any patient buy-in it's not like well you know we have these options it may burn sting it may work you want to try it or hey this is your (laughs) this is your issue i'm prescribing lafitograss symptoms are gonna uh, in the clinical studies improve in two weeks and yada 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 but it's all how you uh, discuss, discuss it with the patient. What are your thoughts on that? Totally agree. Totally agree. And it takes a little time as a practitioner to find your way to connect with the patients and your wording. I think everyone's is unique, but you definitely um, have to be confident in what you're recommending. It's okay to give patients options sometimes. Sometimes I do that, um, but I usually explain, you know, we need to do one of these two things here's the pros and cons of each, what do you want to do, and be firm even in that. Yep, being firm. To go to, to follow up with the, with the staff and the, and the team as well, uh, it, you definitely have a standardized approach and you're, you're, you're following up education as well. Uh, how do you maintain those standards over time? Because, you know, even in our clinic, we try to do something and then slowly we see some of the tests going away and not being performed as consistently. I mean, what do you, and that's, Anything to add on that or comment Um, on that? Well, I guess that's the struggle of of any aspects of the practice. You have to expect from your team and then inspect what they're doing. So I think it's just about keeping an eye on it, looking at it. Patient marked three, did they do the tear lab? If not, holding them accountable. So I've gone up to them and said, hey, they marked three. Why did you not do the tear lab? And they'll say, well, the patient didn't want it cost too much. And now they just leave me those notes so I don't come hunt them down. Um, we also um, offer monthly prizes for the tech that performs the most tier labs. If we have a tech that's really doing a good job of it, we kind of let them speak at the meeting. Like, what do you say to patients? How do you fight their pushback? How do you get these tests done? Um, mm-hmm. So those are some of the things we do to keep the ball rolling. Yeah. And and in any of those opportunities, 
uh, when we're working with our staff is helping them. You know, we have our scripts, as you mentioned, when we're talking to patients, but giving them scripts, and that way they can be reinforcing whether it's dry eye, whether it's glaucoma, and everyone from the practice is saying they are uh, giving a consistent message. And I, I think another key here is staff buy-in. When you're offering something new, they don't really have that vision you have, and, and it sometimes takes a little time for them to see the results of, okay, Dr. Showalter diagnosis, they treated it, the patient's doing better, and then it, it kind of picks up the excitement once they see the results of what's happening as a result of it. All right, I got another question for you. And this should be a fun one for you, or easy one. Why is the tear film so critical to all aspects of vision? whether it's surgical, contact lenses, or whatever, whoever your patient is? Well, you know, I think we tend to think in our minds that the lens is the major player uh, because we know what happens to aphakic patients, but the cornea is actually responsible for 70% of the refractive power of the eye, and the tear film is the initiating refractive surface, so it's definitely critical in maintaining clear vision. And, you know, I just have seen so many patients sitting there. We've all seen them blinking in the chair trying to clear the letters up. Oh, now I can see it. You know, it's it's right there in our chair every day, how important that tear film is. Yeah, and the number one symptom of a patient with dry eye is, is blurred vision. And so that tear film plays a huge role, uh, as, as you mentioned. And if it's blurry, qualify, or quantifying it, what is a refractive error? Or, you know, if it's decreased vision and if it's always decreased, it's refractive error or it's cataracts or glaucoma or macular degeneration. But if it changes or fluctuates, Throughout the day, we know that that's the tear film, and, um, and we know the contact lens uh, intolerance or leads to dropouts, and we know that the dropout rate hasn't changed in who knows how many years at 14% of, of patients dropping out. Um, but uh, the surgical patients we've mentioned, I mean, that's such a, uh, a key factor in preparing our patients um, before we refer them off to, to the cataract surgeon. As we know, we're seeing a lot of uh, changes within uh, COVID, and we're seeing a lot of uh, restrictions uh, due to the increase in, in COVID cases. But what trends are you seeing currently as related to COVID and, and dry eye? We are definitely seeing more. Um, some of it's mask-related. You know, a lot of it is screen time. Even, you know, my elderly patients will say, well, I can't get out of the house now, so I'm just sitting at home reading all the time. Um, and, and all of these more near tasks are causing dry eye problems where they weren't there before. Um, as far as the mask-related dry eye, I kind of consider that in the category as env environmental dry eye. It's something we've already been discussing with our patients. What's your work environment? You might need to eliminate some heating ducts, so we just need to do the extra step and counsel them. You might need to tape your mask at the top and make sure it's fitting well. Um, but definitely seeing a rise. For yeah, all of those reasons. Too. And how many Zoom calls have you been on lately? <laughs> Quite a few. How about you? Yeah. yeah. You know, we're staring at that computer. I'm like, all right, well, blink. <laughs> Just blink. I feel <laughs> my eyes drying out. And, and so we feel it as well. And, and we, know our, we know our patients are, are, are feeling it. Um, what, are, uh, what are some of the pearls uh, that you can share on how you work with pre-surgical cataract and refractive patients? So as I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm pretty insistent with the patient that we cannot refer them for surgery until we address their ocular surface issues, whether that's dry eye or, or simply nocturnal lag of thalamus, allergy, whatever that is, we need to address it. Um, if not, their visual outcomes will be inferior and they're likely to have discomfort. 
Um, and I kind of say, I don't want to delay your surgery, but you know, so I'm going to be a little more aggressive, but I really feel this is something we need to do first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially with cataract surgery. We know cataract surgery is refractive. It's refractive cataract surgery, and patients have uh, high expectations, and they want, they want those outcomes. And if we don't address that surface, that definitely does impact that. And, you know, when the, when the uh, multifocals first came out, uh, one of our uh, uh, big referring ODs called me and said, hey, Walt, you know, these lenses are great. I have 20 patients. Ten of them love them. The other ten either hate it or can tolerate it. We've got to figure out how we can best identify who's going to be the best candidate. And, you know, when, when the multifocals first came out, where it was like that Oprah meme where you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. And so we thought everybody was a, a candidate, but we found that it's important to match the technology of the patient and the patient's technology. If you can't address that dryness, uh, they're not going to be a good candidate. And that's what we found out is eight out of the ten of those patients that weren't as happy with that implant, it was due to ocular surface disease. And that's why, you know, we, we, we make sure we rule that out and address it. If we can't, then they're not going to be a candidate for any of the lifestyle uh, lenses. And, and that's a great point. That reminds me of a patient I just had recently. Um, I have a, a local surgeon who just will send his dry eye patients to me and say, you know what, when their dry eyes clear, send them back to me for surgery. I'm not doing the surgery. So I had one of these, and it took a little while with this one. Maybe it was three or four months, and we ended up with Procara, and she went back, and she was just back in recently, and he, her ocular surface was optimized to the point where he could now go ahead and do the premium IOL. And she had 20-20 distance, 20-25 near uncorrected and was thrilled. Mm -hmm. And so we have those opportunities to change people's lives in that way. Mm -hmm. And so I, I might be kind of putting you on the spot here uh, in regards to treatment. And so we have that pre-surgical patient and we know we have a lot of great options and you know, we both had that question, are you a lefitograph person, are you a cyclosporin person? And uh, my answer, and I'd like to hear what yours is, is both, because you have to understand both of the medications. We know we live in this managed care world, and so not everybody's going to be able to get the, the, the medications. Uh, but if you have that patient that's dry, that needs cataract surgery yesterday, what would you put them on first? Um. I guess it's a it depends situation. So if I feel like it's really an aqueous deficient situation, I'm probably going to go with restasis or sequa mm -hmm. um, to increase the tear volume. Um, if I don't feel that way, I would prefer Zydra because it it works quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I also will sometimes use steroid topical steroid drops to get there fast as well. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And and uh, that would have been my answer as well. And so uh, so great job great job on that one. But the main thing is to address it. And we know with the cyclosporin with a uh, 0.05% has a castor oil in there. We know that does improve uh, total corneal staining. And so we've had great success with that. But we've also had patients on lafitograss who are symptomatic quickly. And, and some patients, we, they have to have the steroids because the, the other ones may not be covered. And so that's essentially, um, so it's not one for everybody, but everybody needs something if they have dry eye, we're preparing them for surgery. Um, what, uh, the second to last question I have for you is we know that dry eye is a chronic condition. We know we have to worry about patient compliance. Do you have any pearls to uh, help patients stay compliant or, or adherent 
to the various treatments that you're recommending to optimize their outcomes long-term? I guess my tactic is to make sure that the patient understands the disease mm -hmm. and understands what's going on with their eyes. So if I can show them, look, your glands are atrophied, and this is what where your glands might end up, and show them a picture of no glands. Um, mm -hmm. Anything that we can show them really helps make them a believer. Or talking to them about the tear osmolarity, this is really high. You know, you qualify as severe dry eye, if, um, or even if it's just moderate, maybe a, even a mild patient, I'll say, this is mild now, but if we don't address it now, it's going to get worse over time. Um, and I don't want you to end up not able to wear your contact lenses. Or I don't want you to end up being able to struggle with your computer use every day. So I try to put it into perspective of, of what they can understand and, and how it might affect their lifestyle. Um, sometimes they aren't compliant, and that is unfortunately a reality that you have to learn to deal with in dry eye disease. Um, but I've learned if they don't follow your first treatment, try a different one. It's probably not worth trying to sit there and talk them into using Zydra if they wouldn't use it for the last six weeks. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so we have to individualize treatment for, for, for patients as well. And if the patients don't understand their condition, I agree, they're, they're, they're not going to do it. But it's so important that the patients own their condition. You know, we can only tell them and educate them and tell them what's going to work for them, but it's important that they have the buy-in because that's the only way they're going to get that, uh, that relief and address their symptoms as well. So I know exactly. I've asked you a lot of questions. Is there, a, is there a question you wish I asked that I didn't ask that you'd like to ask? I think you were pretty thorough, Walt. <laughs> <laughs> Throw all over the board, but uh, no, you did awesome. And I uh, appreciate all the insights that you shared with us. And so uh, thank you so much there, Dr. Showalter, for being on this Dry Eye Coach podcast. And thank you all for listening to our Dry Coach podcast. So we look forward to having you all listen to the upcoming ones. Uh, but with that, thank you once again, and have a great day.